Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, and it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on sex, rape, incest, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season five, episode nine, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1987 horror fantasy film Hellraiser. It was written and directed by Clive Barker, and it stars Ashley Lawrence, Claire Higgins, Doug Bradley, Andrew Robinson, and Sean Chapman. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it first. We also have an episode dedicated entirely to Clive Barker, so if you're a fan or you would like to learn more, well, we suggest that you listen to that episode, and we've linked it in the show notes. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So having been dismayed at prior cinematic adaptations of his work, cough, rawhead Rex, cough, Uh (laughs) Barker decided to attempt to direct a film based on his work himself. Barker said, quote, By the mid-80s, I'd had two cinematic abominations made from my stories. It felt as if God was telling me I should just direct. How much worse could I be? I said to Christopher Figg, who became my producer. What's the least I could spend and expect someone to hire a first-time director? And he said, under a million dollars, you just need a house, some monsters, and pretty much unknown actors. So the film was originally made under the working title, uh, Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. Oh! <laughs> I love it. (laughs) Yes. um, And Barker also thought about just calling the film Hellbound (laughs) based on the title of his novel that the film was based on, The Hellbound Heart. Uh, But producer Christopher Figg suggested Hellraiser instead. And I believe this was because it just sounded, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I think it just sounded more uplifting. Like people like wanted to see something like that. Like Like it was more catchy, I guess. Yeah. And Clive Barker agreed. He's like, okay, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So in order to stand out on its own as a horror film, Hellraiser required some design elements that hadn't been seen before. Something equivalent to Freddy Krueger's fedora uh, and the striped sweater and the burnt face. So the look of the Cenobites, such as the pins in their leader's head, uh, these were inspired by gay S&M clubs. And Clive Barker was not only visually inspired by S&M, but he was emotionally inspired as well. And we'll talk more about this later. The week before filming started, Barker went to the library at Crouch End, where he was currently living in London, and he tried to take out a book about directing. However, they only had one book and it was already taken out. So luckily, the cast and crew were very, very gentle with him. (laughs) 
and Barker stated, quote, you can only go that far into the darkness if everybody's on board, unquote. So initially, New World, who had picked up the film, couldn't care less about how things were going on set. Then about halfway through the six-week shoot, they said, we're just going to come over. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And Robin Vigian, I think that's how you say his last name, who was the director of photography, he said to Clive Barker, I've seen this a million times. They see something they like, and so they just want to take charge. So three producers from New World came over, and they were all wearing Burberry coats, apparently. Oh, fancy. So Robin and Barker had changed the schedule that day, I guess. So they were filming an incredibly bloody scene, and one of the producers may or may not have gotten their Burberry splashed with blood. Oh, my God. So they, like, fled after being there for only, like, 15 minutes. Incredible. Yeah, and they actually didn't bother Barker again until later on, and they got him to relocate the story from England to America, and they wanted to have some of the actors' lines uh, overdubbed with American accents rather than English accents. Which, of course, Clive Barker, he didn't feel great about because originally the story had been quote-unquote so English. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, the dubbing is very awkward and it also makes it hard to figure out where in the world you are. It's like watching um, an Argento film. Yeah. You're like, what What country is this? (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? Yeah, no, exactly. So after the MPAA gave Hellraiser an X rating, Barker had to cut a lot of the gore, but he also had to cut out a lot of the sex in the film as well. In an interview with Samhain magazine in July of 1987, Barker mentioned some of the problems that censors had with the more erotic scenes in the movie. He said, quote, Well, we did have a slight problem with the eroticism. I shot a much hotter flashback sequence than they would allow us to cut in. I had a more explicit sexual encounter between Frank and Julia, but they said, no, let's take out the sodomy and put in the flick knife. Yikes! Yeah, so they wanted more violence almost. (laughs) Yeah. It's so strange. Creepy. So Hellraiser had its first public showing at the Prince Charles Cinema on September 10th, 1987. The film was released in the United States on September 18th, 1987, and it grossed about $14 million in the United States and Canada, earning a worldwide total of $33 million with an overall budget of only $1 million. Wow, not too shabby. So although Hellraiser received mixed to negative reviews in the U.S. and Canada, Barker's native England couldn't get enough of the film. Time Out London referred to Hellraiser as, quote, Barker's dazzling debut that creates such an atmosphere of dread that the astonishing set pieces simply detonate to a chain reaction of cumulative intensity and concluded that the film was a, quote, serious, intelligent and disturbing horror film. So with that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. During his travels abroad in Morocco, Frank Cotton buys a small puzzle box from a local merchant, takes it home, 
and in the attic of his large house is ripped apart by hooks and chains that appeared after he successfully solved and opened the box. He is assumed dead or missing, and the house lays abandoned until his brother Larry and his wife Julia take responsibility of the home and move in. The marriage between them is strained, however, because Julia had an affair with Frank shortly before marrying Larry. Larry's daughter from his first wife, Kirsty, decides that she wants a place of her own and moves into an apartment not far from them in the city. One day, while moving furniture into the house, Larry cuts his hand on a nail and asks Julia, who is exploring the attic, to help him as he cannot stand the sight of blood. His bloody hand drips onto the dusty hardwood floors where Frank was ripped apart years earlier. As they rush Larry to the hospital, the blood seeps into the floorboards where Frank's shredded body is suspended, and the blood brings him back to life. However, it's not enough to fully reform Frank's eviscerated body, so he's forced to cower in the attic until Julia finds him one day, just a skeleton covered in disgusting bodily fluids. Frank explains to Julia that he needs more blood to bring him fully back to his human form, and she agrees to lure people to the house to kill and feed to Frank, so that she and Frank can be together again. She brings several men to the house, and Larry doesn't seem to notice, but Kirsty catches her in the act and follows her to the attic, where she finds Frank, almost fully formed, wearing clothes that belong to her father. She makes an escape with the puzzle box and wakes up in the hospital after she collapses. There, she solves the puzzle box and summons the Cenobites. They prepare to take her back to hell, but she offers them a deal. Frank in exchange for her freedom. She flees the hospital to warn her father of the conspiracy, but it's too late. Julia and Frank have already killed Larry, and Frank now inhabits Larry's body. Unaware that her uncle swapped bodies with her father, Kirsty is relieved to see her father alive, until she figures out that it's actually Frank. Julia and Frank try to corner Christy in the house to kill her and keep her from escaping. Frank accidentally stabs Julia to death as Kirsty makes her way hastily to the attic, where she plans to sacrifice Frank to the Cenobites. She successfully summons them and fights her way out of the house with her boyfriend in tow as the Cenobites tear Frank apart and the house burns to the ground. Outside, Kirsty throws the puzzle box into the fire, but a vagrant homeless man who had been watching her the entire time retrieves the box from the flames and flies off into the night. The puzzle box has been returned to the original merchant, and the film closes with him making another sale to an unsuspecting buyer. Oh, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. So, the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes, but only slightly. Julia and Kirsty only speak briefly about a towel. <laughs> Do you have a towel? <laughs> So Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. But I... Listen, that doesn't mean that we want to overshadow the fact that this film was written and directed by a gay man. So, was the final girly person of color? No. And were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? Good question. Hmm. 
I don't know if I want to answer that because there has been a lot of uh, queer theory about the film. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I don't really have the authority to kind of make my own decision. But a lot of people do feel like Julia especially is sort of like a queer icon. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that might may like why that might be and I kind of agree with it, but what do you the listener think about this question? Mm, let us know. Yeah. So, Julia and Kirsty Cotton, victim and victor and the duality of both. So, Julia has become this like evil stepmother character. And she's tasted the forbidden fruit, so to speak, and she's become entangled in a toxic trap set by Frank while simultaneously leading the life of a married woman with Larry, who is infatuated with her. And Julia knows that she is a beautiful woman and she uses it to her advantage, first to marry Larry, then to lure men back to the house to resurrect Frank. So she's she's an interesting character for sure. Yeah, I I somewhat disagree with with that aspect of it though, but um I don't think that she is a femme fatale stereotype. Like I think personally that she's very sympathetic and she's seduced by Frank right before the wedding and like her wedding is going to be to this really nice but super dull guy. I mean his name is Larry first yeah. of all. <laughs> And Not that there's name anything is, wrong with that name, but well, it is commonly considered like like a it's it's, it's a common name, I guess. Like right, Larry right. feels like a kind of like a, an every like a shucks kind of guy, you know. Yeah. Um, but she like I think she nurses Frank back to life to give herself pleasure because she feels like she's now lacking it. And after she's tasted the forbidden fruit, you mentioned. Um, I think she changes from a housewife to a woman possessed by her desire. And oh, yeah. She's sort of like a Lady Macbeth. And to quote Barker from The Hellbound Heart, uh, she had made this man or remade him, used her wit to give him substance. The thrill she felt touching his too vulnerable body was the thrill of ownership. So that to me, I think for the first time in her life, she felt that she was in control of something and of someone. And I think she felt like for the first time she was in control of her future. And I don't think she married Larry because she was using him or because she felt she could control him with her beauty or whatnot. I think she married him because she didn't know where else to go. And she felt like her duty was to be a housewife to this boring, squeamish man. And She seemed perfectly happy until Frank showed up. And when he did, he, like you you said, I do agree with this part, he used her. And I think that makes her a very well-rounded and tragic figure. Yeah, that is actually a really good point. Because Julia seems on the fence about her affair with Frank. Like, Mm -hmm. he's obviously a threatening force. And it's no wonder that she just goes along with his advances after he pulls a knife on her before having sex with her. Yeah, And, like, she falls under his spell. And their relationship, it's like this strange Stockholm Syndrome-like circumstance. Mm. And even in his grotesque state, the thought of having Frank alive again is enticing to Julia. So she agrees to help Frank by trapping men. So 
Is she a victim without even knowing it? Or can we all agree that she's just as abusive or manipulative as Frank? Or is it like that weird circumstantial thing? When I watch Hellraiser, I can't help but think like, okay, this is Julia's story. Like Hellraiser is a gothic ghost story about a wife who is unfaithful to her husband. And when she encounters the ghost of her dead lover, who happens to also be her brother-in-law, he is also chased by demonic creatures and needs her help. And I just feel like that to me just sounds like, I don't know, it just sounds like a gothic ghost story to me. And Frank, like we said earlier, he's not interested in Julia. He only needs her to return to this world because he wants to continue his pursuit of pleasure. And she falls for it. And he fooled her but at the same time I really do think that she felt powerful after meeting him and I think she felt that she could feel feel more and do more sexually and that gave her a power she didn't have before and you you can just tell by the way she's dressed mm-hmm. when she meets Frank like she wears little to no makeup and she has longer curly hair and After Frank is gone and disappears, she wears more makeup and has cut her hair shorter to make it more fashionable. And I think it's telling that she looks a lot like David Bowie because Mm -hmm. she's sort of gender ambiguous. Like she's harnessing both masculine and feminine energy. And I think that uh, by being sexually awoken by Frank Mm -hmm. has given her this almost like this goddess of sexual energy. Like she can feel like both and she can be dominant and she can be submissive and she can continue this life of this newfound pleasure that she's discovered. I think her flaw is that she, which is good because she should have flaws because she's a character. I think her flaw is that she's so hung up on Frank, she can't seem to move past him oh. and and leave Larry and then just go off on her own and do more stuff that she wants to do now. Like instead she feels, I think she feels torn between the this very gender ambiguous, sexually awoken person and then uh, this housewife. So that is actually a really interesting point because I just thought, and we'll obviously discuss this more in depth as we go on in the episode, but we have a theory about Kirsty and Frank. And it's really interesting to me that Frank has sex with Julia, so now she becomes this, like, she feels like she has a power and, like, he actually gave her something. Mm. Whereas when it comes to Kirsty, he has taken something from her. Yes. So it's like... Two women, but on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes, and that's why I think that this whole duality thing is so perfect. Yeah, well, and I want to kind of go back to um, what you were saying about those flashbacks when Julia was a little bit younger before she got married. I think she's made to look younger and more innocent because when Frank sees her, he has to have her. Like, she's, like, this pure, untouched thing, kind of. And after he is gone, he leaves this wake of destruction and longing, and Julia becomes closed off from everyone and everything. And in a way, I think that Julia is sad that she hadn't met Frank before Larry. Mm. Like, she seems just so upset and so sad about the way things worked out. 
And, you know, not to mention she's basically forced into sex with Frank because he's intimidating. Like, he's a predator. Right, yeah. And he wants to experience pleasure at the cost of other people's dignity, basically. And he doesn't care how he gets it, so that's what makes him such a predator. And if Julia had refused him, like, who knows what would have happened, you know? Right, exactly. No matter what she does, Julia loses over and over again. Like, she ends up dying for an abusive man, and when she isn't with him, she's not truly happy. So, you're right. Like, she is a super tragic character. Yeah, and I think that's why we have to give her a little more credit than I think some people do, because... I think it's easy to call her fallen. Like a wicked stepmother. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, but you're absolutely right. She absolutely is a wicked stepmother. Well, yeah, she's kind of a jerk. (laughs) She's definitely a jerk. But I think that there's so much more to her than that. And uh, that's just the surface, I think, for Julia. But yeah, uh, yeah, she's a great, great character. She really is. Um, and then on the other hand, or the other end of the spectrum is Kirsty, who has a boyfriend that she's been spending the night with. But we, I mean, we see this like super briefly in the film, but she doesn't use her sexuality the same way Julia does. And this obviously is due to many factors like age, living situations, etc., but both women have been victimized by Frank. We think. Like, that's our theory. Right. Um, we discussed, Gracie and I did, the strong possibility that Kirsty was molested by her uncle Frank in her younger years. Um, and in her dream sequence, we can hear a young girl screaming and crying. And maybe this is like a repressed memory of what happened between her and Frank before he abandoned the house. And her father basically begs for Kirsty to come live at the house after he and Julia move in, but she insists on getting her own place. And I think that maybe the memories of being there are too much for her to bear. Right. And when I first started, I think the first time I saw this film, I always thought her crying was because the first dream is about her father being dead. And I always felt like she was crying because uh, she was remembering her mother maybe dying. Yeah. And that was what I always kind of assumed. But then she cries again. And we'll talk about it soon. Uh, But I just want to mention why I, I changed my theory. She cries again when she's walking down the long hallway that appears after she opens up the lament configuration. Mm-hmm. And the crying happens then. To me, it just seemed like it didn't really make sense for the, the little girl crying part to be there unless you look at it. She was molested. Yeah. Way. And we'll talk about more of that, that, but that's why I changed my theory. But go ahead. Interesting. <laughs> well... Yeah. I just want to mention um, there's a really great article for Medium written by Kelsey Matson, and she makes a great point. And she says that Julia is effectively the fairy tale evil stepmother deconstructed. We understand the basis of her motivations and desires, even if we can't condone her actions. The narrative never casts her aside as villainous or undeserving of empathy. In fact, near the climax, Frank turns upon her without a second of regret and sucks her dry to fuel his own regeneration. Nothing personal, baby, he murmurs as she bleeds out in his arms. 
To Frank, she was nothing but a tool, a temporary pleasure. The loathsome hedonist who prioritizes his own pleasure to the point of his own destruction also ruined the life of the woman who adored him. Man is the true monster, far more than the demonic Cenobites, big surprise. Trapped by... <laughs> Trapped by the confines on all sides, the only way Julia knows how to grasp the happiness, acceptance, and fulfillment she wants is through desperate means. She makes the best of her limited options. In hand with Claire Higgins' majestic, measured, towering performance, Julia stands as one of horror's most effective, satisfying figures. So that definitely goes along with what you were saying, too, about her being like a tragic, gothic character. For yeah. sure. Um, but the article also mentions Kirsty and, like, what about her? Matson goes on to say, Now we have Kirsty, stepdaughter of Julia and balls-to-the-wall heroine extraordinaire. <laughs> yes. Independent, crass, and fiercely quick-witted. From word one, Kirsty's clapping back at the final girl tropes. She's determined to live independently on her own terms, despite her father's coddling. Larry... You've made the gesture of moving out. Kirsty. it's not a gesture, Dad. <laughs> she has sex with a boy she's openly attracted to, and it's no big deal. She fights back against Frank instantly, screaming and kicking and hurling the puzzle box out of the window with a blistering, You want it? Fucking have it. When she solves said puzzle box, not an easy feat, she makes a whip-fast deal with the Cenobites for her own life exchange for Frank's, despite being understandably out of her mind with sheer terror. And when the Cenobites turn on her in the finale, she screams right the hell back at them and sends them one by one back to hell with bloodthirsty fury. A teenage girl, threatened with unimaginable torture, traumatized by the loss of her father, repeatedly outmatches omnipotent demons on the strength of her own cleverness. She solves, she bargains, she manipulates, she slaps her boyfriend's hand away from the box because she fucking knows how to fix it and doesn't need help. <laughs> and she does it while screaming obscenities, as most of us would. That's my girl. So that was a really long quote, but I just loved that description of Kirsty because... It's absolutely true. Like, I love her. Kirsty always reminded me of, like, a lion. Like, I feel like yes! her, her zodiac sign would be a Leo. Like, yeah. I just, she's so fiery and prideful and protective that I feel like she fits that pretty well. Yes, for sure. And her hair. Girl, and her hair. And her that hair. hair is fabulous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So let's sort of dive into the whole idea of domestic horror and this this idea of your home being a place that should be safe. And then, of course, the abuse that we assume is happening in the yeah. home. Gina Whisker has a great book about horror fiction, and in it, she discusses domestic horror, which I believe Hellraiser perfectly falls under. And we've talked about domestic horror in the past when we discussed Halloween and Juwan, which those are in the show notes as well, guys, if you want to take a listen. Um, but I just want to reiterate. So domestic horror locates the scene of horror within the family and also uses uses the location of the home as the place of horror because, naturally, our home is where we are supposed to feel safe. 
So these familiar locations have been exposed as potential danger zones. And undercutting these qualities of comfort and security really is the stuff of horror. Mm -hmm. And we cannot forget that the family and domestic relationships within the home also come under attack in domestic horror. So in Hellraiser, Clive Barker's locations for all the horror are the domestic setting, as well as the relationships within this extremely dysfunctional cotton family. What domestic horror does is it transforms what is recognized as real in order to expose what is feared and what is hidden. So, for example, like family secrets, really. And this absolutely could relate to Julia being unfaithful to Larry and Frank being a pleasure addict. But I think that this could also be uh, an explanation for our assumption that Kirsty was molested by Frank when she was younger. And... It's never spoken about openly in the film. And in the book, Kirsty is actually Larry, or his name is Rory in the book. She's actually his friend. She's not a daughter at all. Like, she's, right. just, a, she's just a friend that's a girl. And she is in love with Larry slash Rory. But so the relationship in this film has changed, which I think is really interesting. She's never, it's never spoken about openly, like I said, but... There are so many clues, and this whole idea of a child crying hysterically when Kirsty dreams, and then the fact that Frank says, come to daddy to her. I just vomited in my mouth. So he says it to Julia, too, but he says it like five times, I feel like, to Kirsty. Yeah. And he also calls her, he also says, you're so beautiful, and you must make your daddy so proud. And, And when she says that he's hurting her, he says something, I forgot what it was, but he says something along the lines of, it used to hurt me, too. And I think that this speaks volumes, because I think that maybe Frank was a abused as a child also. Yeah. Which this is something that unfortunately is common when it comes to the abuse cycle. Now it does not happen to everybody. Not everyone who was abused becomes an abuser, but it is something that does happen. And in a 1987 interview in Fangoria magazine, Andrew Robinson, who is the actor who played Larry, elaborated on the concept of the internal threat in Hellraiser. He said, I found that the premise in the script of Hellraiser begins with something interesting, something horror films don't usually begin with, a family and its problems, and then the horror extends from that. Ooh. You know, that kind of off topic a little bit kind of reminds me of like hereditary hereditary is is another domestic horror film absolutely and a lot of people like to call it mom horror (laughs) which i think is so i don't know i don't really like that term i can see why it's called that but i don't like it i think domestic horror makes more sense because this is more of something that's happening to like you said like familiar horror so yeah that's happening in the home Anyway, so let's talk about the horror within ourselves, right? So in Hellraiser, there are two threats. They are linked, and both are literally and figuratively internal threats, right? So one of them is domestic horror, which we just talked about. It's within the home and within the family. But the other one is the horror that's within ourselves. Like, this whole connection with horror being so uncanny because it takes place within a home, but it also takes place within the character 
characters in the home, right? Mm. So it's like a dream within a dream. I, I'm trying. I'm trying to explain it. Um, the horror just goes so deep. Like, for an example, like Julia grows horror in the womb of the home, right? She grows Frank in the home, and. Yeah in this but she's doing it because she has this horror within herself like the selfishness and this pleasure that she needs to st- she needs to feed almost so right right i think that that's what i'm trying to say is that everything that happens in the home is because something evil is happening within the people in the home as well well you know home is where the heart is yeah so <laughs> Yes. So, I don't know if that's um, what they had in mind when they came up with that saying, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it because, like, the first thing we see of Frank when, he, after, you know, after the Cenobites have gotten a hold of him is his heart under the yeah, floorboards. Yeah, the beating heart. Ooh. Yes. Which reminds me of Edgar Allan Poe, but. Yes. Oh, my we'll God. Get, there's so much to talk about. Okay. So Nizin Lopez says, quote, Hellraiser shows how spiritual entities can be summoned through opened portals. These gates are nothing but low vibratory frequencies that activate potent energies. The foundation of a society is family, and Hellraiser shows how a family can be destroyed through a non-elevated vibratory frequencies. All right, well, I think it's... (laughs) That was quite the uh, quote there. Yeah, we're going to hear more from him later. <laughs> nice. Um, I think it's interesting that Julia is not a mother, yet she gives life to Frank, yep. who, like, takes and takes like a baby. <laughs> but <laughs> she is viewed as, like, the evil stepmother character that we mentioned before and treats Kirsty with this cold distance, but perhaps... Her own personal horror has to do with not having the ability or desire to give life until Frank comes back to her. Mm. And then on the other hand of this is Kirsty, whose horror is the loss of her biological mother. And she's missing a crucial part of her life, the person who gave her life in the first place. And she's without the protection of her mom also, for the most part, like... Larry, even though he means well, seems oblivious to what Kirsty's been through, and he has a good relationship with her, but he's really aloof. So it's like they both are kind of like missing a link in their life, and they're trying to fulfill it with this, I don't know, this like weird relationship with Frank. Mm. Maybe not so much Kirsty, but definitely Julia. Yes, I, I can see that. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the puzzle box or the lament configuration and also flower imagery because that weirdly goes with this. (laughs) So as Jeffrey Smith points out in his mythic analysis of Hellraiser entitled Demons to Some, Angels to Others, the Leviathanic mythos of Clive Barker's Hellraiser Quote, the tale of people stumbling onto an object that is a gateway to another dimension was pioneered by pulp horror fiction writer H.P. Lovecraft in the 1920s and 30s. Like the Hellraiser mythos, Smith maintains, individuals in the Lovecraftian mythos often knew little of the actual rewards or consequences of the rites they would perform. So. Yeah, so the use of of a box that unleashes evil on mankind 
it can also be traced back to Greek mythology, right? Because we have Pandora who had a jar or a box or whatever, and she wasn't allowed to open it under any circumstance, but she was just compelled by her natural curiosity and she opened it and all of the evil in the world uh, that was contained just spread all over the earth. Yeah. And so in the same way, Clive Barker just as... H.P. Lovecraft, provided the characters in the story a means of to both satisfy their curiosity and loose evil upon mankind. So yeah. the mythos around this film is insane. Like, if yes. you don't love anything else about it, you have to love the mythos. It's just magic. Well, of <laughs> course. Like, who doesn't love the Cenobites? Come on. But seriously, though, so... Um, Nizan Lopez, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he also looks at the mythic qualities of the Lament configuration. He says, quote, the box is a symbol of our dense physical reality. It is a representation of matter. It could easily remind us of the Kaaba in Mecca. For those of you who don't know, the Kaaba in Mecca is a large black cubed stoned granite that Muslims visit for pilgrimage. And the Quran contains several verses regarding the origin of the Kaaba. It states that the Kaaba was the first house of worship and that it was built by Abraham and Ishmael on Allah's instructions. This is fascinating to me because the film begins and ends with the box and not just with it, but what is within it, right? Like the credits mm. end and then we see the box. And then Kirstie's... The, she's with her boyfriend and the homeless guy flies off with the box. And then, it, but we immediately show that it's like, it's almost like it's happening within the box, right? Right. So the lament configuration is like the anti-Kaaba, like where the, that is the house of God and it is a place of spiritual purity. The lament mm -hmm. configuration, configuration is a house of hell and filled with dark pleasures. Ooh. Yes. Oh, so, I like that. Now, the box isn't a square, right? It's a six-sided, eight-cornered cube. But if you just look at it straight on, it has just four corners. It's a mm -hmm. square if you just look at it straight on, which is how we are introduced to it, right, at the beginning of the film. And we also conclude with it looking like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I used to work at Tivana. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about that. Wow. Years and years ago. And I remember one of my Japanese friends who also worked there with me told me that when you serve tea, you never have four cups at the table. Even if you are inviting three people over and then yourself included for tea, you always set at least five because it's a Japanese superstition. And I'm not exactly sure how many people still believe it. It's kind of like how 13 is unlucky for us in the U.S., but the reason why, the reason why is traditionally the number four is unlucky because it is sometimes pronounced she, which is the word for death. Oh. And sometimes like levels or rooms in uh, Asian culture, the number four just doesn't exist in, it, in hospitals or elevators or hotels, oh much like how the number 13 in some like really old buildings, like you don't really see like a 13th floor, right? Right. And that's why. And so I kind of think that it's interesting that it, the box, or when you just look at it straight on, the square with the four corners could be related to death in a way. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yes. That's crazy. Now, 
<laughs> the sexual symbol of a flower right is channeled in terms of psychic energy like in this and almost this entire film like there are plenty of subliminal references made here in connection with the blossoming Kirsty, right so there's a flower that appears on the tv when Kirsty is in the presence of a nurse and you know it's white it's just pure looking and yet it turns red eventually and there is a visual connection to like blood in in that scene almost and and that happens i i'm pretty sure it happens either right before she uses the box or right after i think it's after Okay, so it's after she has opened the lament configuration. Yeah, because everything is, like, cracking open. Yes, and there's blood in the... Um, the IV that? bag. Yes, the IV bag. Yeah. Um, so I feel like this could represent the loss of her virginity mm-hmm. and how it was a very traumatic thing for her. Yeah. And Frank, when he summons the Cenobites, he, like... He and Kirsty, like, they, like, take their finger and they, like, rub the circle part at the yeah. top. And that's what makes it open. And they both do that, right? So that, to me, is a very sexual thing. Wow, yeah. And when it opens, it kind of becomes like a shape of a flower. And so this is interesting to me because this could sort of be a symbol of sexual awakening, and it could be like that for Kirsty, but also for Frank as well. And I think it's kind of interesting that the two people in this film who open the box are the abused and the abuser. And yeah. I'm wondering, I just feel like there's a connection there. So like this whole idea of this flower and this purity and then the box being opened. I don't know. And also the house has a ton of flower designs in it, which I think is pretty telling as well. Yeah, well, okay, so I want to point out that we see, um, like, Frank's knife and his interactions with both Julia and Kirsty. So, like, he can't keep away from either of them because they are, like, quote-unquote, off-limits to him. Right. And he understands that he has to threaten both of them to get his way, so it's ironic that it's, like, this phallic symbol. Yes, yep. And... Also, like, a note about the flowers on the doors and stuff. So Frank entered the house for the last time with the puzzle box, and he became trapped within after experiencing the ultimate pleasure. So, like, solving the box and summoning the Cenobites. Mm-hmm. So he's passed through a flowered threshold, and he is now kept within Like when he violates Julia and Kirsty and those memories are held so strongly within their psyches. So like he becomes trapped in their memories in such a way that he's just held within the both of them. Hmm. So even more ironic when it comes to the symbol of the puzzle box, like Frank and Kirsty, like you said, are the only ones in the film that solve it. So they're part of an experience that left a super deep impression. And Frank as the perpetrator and Kirsty as the victim. Frank as punishment is unable to reverse the effects of the puzzle box. But Kirsty not only summons the Cenobites by facing her traumas, she sends them the F back to hell. Yes! Like, they both share in a horrible memory 
but Frank receives the punishment he ultimately deserves while Kirsty becomes who she truly is, a boss-ass female, even though she was victimized. So Julia and Larry serve as, like, the opposite but equal forces that balance out the timeline and experiences of both Frank and Kirsty. So the house itself could be seen as a puzzle box. Like, each room holds a memory and an experience of pleasure and, like, a traumatic event. And the more the rooms are explored, the deeper everyone descends into madness. So, and it's actually super ironic that most of this film takes place in the attic, which is the room that's, like, furthest away from hell. It's just, like, so crazy. There are so many layers to this. I love this film. (laughs) It's nuts. It's so good. You seriously don't even realize how much everything is interconnected until you, like, do a deep dive and you're like, holy F, dude. Yes. (laughs) It's crazy. Okay. So let's talk about Pinhead, Mm -hmm. which I think, Clive Barker calls him the Dark Bishop. Is that what he calls him? Uh, oh, it's something like that. Oh, oh my God. I, I know. Totally I can't, can't remember. remember. Anyway, Pinhead and the Cenobites. Yes. So the term Cenobite is actually not a word that Barker invented. Uh, it dates back to the 15th century. And Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary defines a Cenobite as a member of a religious group living together in a monastic community. Um, the Cenobites are presented as, like, enigmatic creatures, and in terms of scream time, th- I said scream time, I meant screen. <laughs> Leave it in! <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of scream time, they are <laughs> incidental characters. And, like, you had mentioned way at the beginning of this episode that, like, the guys in this are, like, the real monsters, like Frank especially. Yeah. Um, but, like, the Cenobites invoke feelings of disgust but also fascination and also some sympathy too. Like in a 1998 interview with Dark Culture magazine, Carpe Noctum, uh, Barker explained that the design of the Cenobites was inspired by the punk movement, right? And by mm. Catholicism, but also S&M elements. And mm. the influence of Catholicism is evident. Like the lead Cenobite, right, wears the priestly clothes and he speaks like a priest. Yeah. And the Cenobites were also different in a way, uh, in the way that they acted. Like Pinhead's priestly, powerful discourse is unique compared to other monsters from that time. Like if you really think about it, either monsters or killers in like early or late 70s, um, 80s films were either mute or they were like wisecrackers right like yeah. like freddy it would be one and then like michael and jason were mute but hellraiser he's uh smart <laughs> yeah. he's sophisticated and he has a british accent like that was an accent they didn't get rid of and doug bradley's accent and um barker said um he, pinhead is a monster who knows his milton as well as he knows his dasad so Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, Clive Barker also didn't coin the the name Pinhead either. That was like a fan thing. Yeah, that was which him. he was upset about. He was so mad. <laughs> but, I mean, we'll like, talk a little bit more about why he was upset about that uh, at the very end of this episode. But yes, yeah. 
I think the I a lot of people were actually really a lot of people within the gay community who were especially into S and M were very happy with the representation in this film. Mm-hmm. I think they felt that they they were they felt validated, I think. Yeah. And even though the Cenobites are supposedly in this bad light, they're really not. Like this whole idea that they're demons to some, angels to others is huge because I feel like more about the experience. Like, um, I forget what the exact quote is, but, um, pinhead says something along the lines of like, Oh, something about experiences that I don't know. I don't remember what it is. Well, he says like, we have such sights to show you. Um, no. And I guess the quote, like no crying, or no tears, please. It's a waste of good pleasure or something. Good suffering. I good think. suffering. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, from what I recall, like I think Barker said that that was something that he had heard at an S&M club. Like somebody oh, had said that. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was something that was validated because if you are consensual, then there's no problem here. Right. Technically, Frank was because yeah, he he was like he knew he knew what he was getting into, (laughs) which is interesting because going back to the whole thing where Kirsty and Frank are the only ones who have opened the box. Frank knew what he was getting into. Kirsty didn't. Yes, because she ends up getting away from the Cenobites like she and she's like here here's your guy that tried to escape you like justice is definitely served so yeah it's heavy stuff yes um which I feel weird transitioning into dislocating (laughs) eroticism but oh no (laughs) it is though so like according to Linda uh Badley in her book, Writing Horror and the Body she says quote Hellraiser is erotic in sexually dislocating ways. Oh. <laughs> At his most rapacious, Frank is portrayed as a growing fetus nourished in the chamber of Julia's desire, right? Like we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like Rawhead Rex, and if you listen to our Clive Barker episode, you will understand what this means. Like Rawhead Rex, Frank is a penis rising <laughs> from the floorboards with the gasp slash roar slash cry of a beast child orgasm. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and it's weird. <laughs> it's well, weird. Yeah. So like this whole idea of these these sights and these sounds of birth, but and violence and sex are all put into this big mess of a movie. Yeah. (laughs) And it's so painful, but it's also like a really compelling scene. And I don't know, it's just, it's squeamish almost. And yeah, you don't really know how to feel. And Abby, I think this is one of the reasons why, because you confided in me and said that you feel like this film is awkward to watch with friends or with your significant other because the sex... Yeah, because the sex is so unnatural. Yeah, it's um, I, I will freely admit that I hate watching this movie with other people. Like, I will only watch it by myself. But yeah. if you watch the scene with Kirsty and the Cenobites after she summons them, there's um really 
uncomfortable forced eroticism. Yeah. I and like I don't even feel comfortable calling it eroticism because that means that it's like pleasurable and consensual. Yes. It's not. It's a reflection of her abuse at the hands of Frank. Like the chatterer with like the guy with the teeth. Mm-hmm. He pins her to the wall and like forces his fingers in her mouth in a really sexually aggressive way. Yes. And like like we mentioned before, like Pinhead tells her not to cry because it's a waste of good suffering and like Butterball is he's like the bald one with the glasses. He's mm-hmm. like licking his lips the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's just got these really overt sexual tones and it's supposed to make us cower in fear, but it's unnatural because the pleasures experienced at the hands of Frank and Julia are taboo. And Frank, he is unable to control his pleasures, and he takes advantage of Kirsty. And he doesn't take issue with being a rapist because no pleasure is off-limits to him. Like, it's only jolting to us because we're human beings with a conscience. So, like, of course it would make us uncomfortable. Right, and, like, going back to Kirsty in her hospital room like when she opens the box and we see the images of blood and the red flower she's walking down the hallway and she hears like the child cry and then she sees the engineer who is obviously a phallic symbol and listen I was talking to my husband about this film and I was telling him about everything that I felt like this film was about And he was like, everything is a phallic symbol. And I was like, I can't help that. (laughs) I know. Can't help that the engineer is obviously a penis with arms and legs, like, crawling the walls. Like, it's so obvious. But I think, like, for, for us, like, the engineer is, like, this terrifying sexual figure, uh, I think, that reminds her of her uncle. And then... Of course, right after she encounters, you know, that thing, she is confronted with the Cenobites who who then, yeah, are like licking their lips and like stuffing their fingers down her throat. It's terrifying and it's terrible and scary. And then the scene that gets me the most is when Frank like eats Julia's frickin chin. Yeah. He looks like he's about to kiss her. He, like, throws her back and then brings her forward, and it's like, oh, they're going to kiss. Oh. And then he, like, starts chewing on her chin. Yes! And that scene always made me so uncomfortable because that, to me, was so unnatural. Like, it's natural to kiss someone on the lips because that's just how we show affection. But when he, he didn't do that, he like, and I, that was absolutely intentional. It was supposed to be a really awkward and off feeling scene. It's not supposed to feel good. You're not supposed to feel good watching it. Right. So can I actually for a second, just go back to what you were saying about the hospital room, because this just popped into my head, but the scene where Kirsty is there in the hospital room and she's summoning the Cenobites it's like it reminds me of giving birth almost because uh-huh. you know it There's like a, the, the whole like, <laughs> yes yeah and the room actually like opens up to her and then right like you've got the creepy gross like 
creature moving up and down the tunnel. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a penis, right? Yeah. In a vagina. I really and think like, that that scene is all about her being raped. That's like, yes, her, that's her being raped by Frank when she was a kid. Like, that's why that scene with the crying child noise. That's why I felt like, OK, I don't think this is about her mother at all. I think this is about I think this is about her being abused. But like, do we do we hear what happened to Kirsty's mother? Like, no. do we know how she dies? So nope. maybe, I don't know, maybe she could have died in childbirth also, which is why it's so <gasps> traumatic for her. Wow, Yikes. That, that was a bummer of me to think of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, final thought. <laughs> oh, yes. So uh, let's talk about Clive Barker and this whole re- reactionary genre that he's not really created but that he's become one with yeah i want to start off by saying that abby and i don't hate stephen king <laughs> i swear to god everybody thinks that we do when it comes to horror <laughs> abby and i both just prefer clive barker's work it's true now you can absolutely disagree with us and that's completely fine you're not gonna change our mind but <laughs> We respect your very different opinion. And okay, that's what I had to say about that. Anyway. Disclaimer, yeah. (laughs) Yes. So going back to Linda Badley in her book, Writing Horror and the Body, she starts with a quote from Clive Barker. And he says, a lot of horror is written to reassure people the values they bring to the book are correct. And he said this in 1990. And it is believed that he had Stephen King in mind, adding... I'm not writing horror to reassure people. (laughs) King writes white soul domesticated and mainstreamed horror. Barker privileged the the different or the marginal. His Mm. protagonists were people on the fringes, right? So Mm. if you read in in any of Barker's work and you watch the films that he's done, the characters are actors and they're gay people. They are sex workers. They are small-time crooks. They are women. And often, they are monsters themselves. And Like, he also made it a vehicle for ideas, right? So he was forcing a reactionary genre to take on these taboos and open up these controversial issues. Mm -hmm. The politics of gender and feminism and male violence and against women and homosexuality and AIDS and urban blight and Marxism and violence and media and pornography and censorship. Like, this was everything that he brought into the genre. And I think it's so important to talk about these things. Yes. And this opens up a gateway to talk about a very particular interview Clive Barker did in 1987 with Open to Question. So for those of you who might not know, Open to Question was a series that ran from 1984 to 1994 in which young people from all around Great Britain were able to ask questions to guest personalities. So take it away, Abby. Yes. So during his interview on Open to Question, um, this was post Hellraiser's release in theaters, Clive Barker was asked if he thought horror, more specifically uh, video nasties, were responsible for influencing murderous and criminal behaviors of youngsters. 
And Clive Barker said no, and that he thought aggressors were more likely to copy a character like Rambo. He said that he was more concerned that children were viewing these quote-unquote video nasties, and he was grilled by the young audience about the horrific imagery in Hellraiser, to which he replied that the notion was unrealistic because nobody has a body in the attic that's going to be resurrected. (laughs) He goes on to say that he writes complete fantasy, and the problem he has with horror is that we worship characters that are, like, psychopaths, basically. Right. And he also says that his storylines are clear metaphors, and the reason why he doesn't get right to the crux of the problem is that imagination helps to deal with our anxieties, eroticism, and insecurities, which we talk about on this show all time the time. He says to the audience that our morbid curiosities are valid because they are an exploration of human behavior and function. Death is a natural part of life and your curiosity is valid. The pursuit of knowledge pertaining to death and the macabre should be normalized, but that curiosity shouldn't allow anyone to be damaged physically or psychologically. And he doesn't put just anything in his work for cheap thrills because you can do that anywhere uh like his views and work are important to him and they are specific to his own fears and personal beliefs yeah i mean hearing you talk about that and then seeing this interview i think it's safe to say that clive barker is very much in touch with his shadow self which Mm -hmm. we mention all the time but it's true yep and um yeah he's very much aware of what is healthy and what isn't and i think these kids were shocked at how eloquent and matter-of-factly he explained everything to them yes and like i love this interview because he is so gentle and you can tell that he is coming from a place of like love and understanding because he talks about his experience with visiting a morgue to witness cadaver exploration and he had jokingly said in an earlier interview that he went for quote-unquote entertainment and he explains himself by saying that he is actually terrified of death and he went with the utmost respect in his heart and he was nervous and unsure if he could handle the experience. Like, he would never write something based upon tragedies that actually happened because he says that, you know, he'd never write a horror story about, like, a concentration camp because it's incredibly distasteful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he doesn't want his work to fall into the hands of those who could take it out of context. And the vicarious experience is the important one, he said. You can deal with these things on a cinematic level, and it's important to be able to do this. And he responded with that when he was asked, you know, if he likes to experience those gross and tragic things. This interview is fantastic for a variety of reasons, but... I think the most interesting part of it is how vintage it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like this interview is a time capsule of sorts because we all know about the satanic panic in the U.S., right? Like Mm -hmm. it started, I believe, in the 70s, but it gained way more traction in the 80s and 90s due to 
cable television. Uh, yeah. Which gave us 24-hour news. And before that, like Walter Cronkite, right, would just come onto every American's TV set and gave you the list of like the major news that happened. Like the president said this today and blah, blah, blah. And that was it. But with cable TV, we were just surrounded by trash news (laughs) just all the time. And in turn, I think that that's what made us all afraid of things that just didn't exist. Right. Because like the satanic ritual abuse was crazy. It was just hysteria. And everyone was talking about it. It wasn't just a something in the U.S. Like, we're very much known for having a satanic panic in the U.S., but yeah. it was really happening all over the world. So these kids in Great Britain were also faced with this whole idea of the satanic boogeyman, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why this interview is so fascinating to me in a historical sense. Like, I wish I could tell you guys listening to this how many times these kids in Open to Question asked Barker, aren't you worried someone will go out and commit these crimes? <laughs> and Barker is just like, no, goddamn you, no! <laughs> like, I write supernatural fiction, but... I really do believe that these kids were legitimately having a hard time disconnecting themselves from the fiction. Yeah. I just love how Clive Barker basically ended the interview with the moderator, who also seemed kind of judgmental, asking him, aren't you afraid someone will watch your movie and decide to bludgeon someone to death? And Barker finally says, no more than if they watch Winnie the Pooh. Yes. And that is very telling. It's so true. It's like that age-old argument about, like, oh, well, video games make people violent. And, you know, we have a whole Coffee Break episode dedicated to why horror doesn't actually make people terrible, violent people. Like... Yeah. Yeah. It's... It just depends on if you're a psychopath or not, honestly. Well... That's it for this week's episode (laughs) of Good Morning, Nancy. (laughs) Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and T-shirts and more. So head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and you will then be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We've got horror trailer reviews, TV show reviews, new movie reviews over there. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. And we're also on Tumblr at Good Morning Nancy. Tell a friend and spread the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.